So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Galatians, or to, where am I at today? Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, if you have a Bible, you can do that. But I want to put up last week's verse. We're in a series called Swing Your Sword. So we're talking about the Word of God and swinging the Word of God. And last week, you're going to, we told you to uh, look at Psalm 119, 105, 112 through 115, and so now it's the time to be tested. So one of you, uh, a single file line, we're going to stand up and see if you memorized it. You made a commitment to uh, memorize it. All right, so here we go. We're going to put up on the screen uh, last week. This was the verse we anchored into, so let's read it together. You ready? One, two, three. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet, a light for my path. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. I hate those with the vital loyalties. Vital loyalties. Thank you. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Get out of my life, you evil-minded people, for I intend to obey the commands of my God. How many of you were able to memorize that this week? Okay, how many of you did not memorize this week? All right. How many of you totally forgot about last week? You're like, totally forgot we were here last week. Okay. With VBS going on, we'll give grace. All right, so... um, in this series, talking about swinging the sword, that, that's the first verse I wanted you to anchor into throughout the summer. So I encourage you to go and study it and memorize it, hold on to it, so you can swing it when you need it. All right, so Galatians chapter 2. The book of Galatians, I'll give a little bit of context to it so we can understand the verse where we're going with this today. Paul writes to these churches in Galatia. Um, specifically, the whole book of Galatians is about false teaching. You have a group of people called Judaizers who are simply, uh, comes from a Greek word meaning to live according to Jewish customs. And so a Judaizer simply is teaching Gentile Christians, people who are becoming Christ followers, that they also have to follow the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament law, okay, or the Torah, that they had to follow certain uh, traditions and regulations. One would be circumcision, that you can't just Uh, have Christ and believe in Christ and go to heaven, you also have to obey the law as well. And so they were mixing these two things together. There are many groups today with the same beliefs and practices, uh, very similar to those of Judaizers in the New Testament. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine to that of Judaizers Judaizers as well. Uh, The New Testament way, the doctrine is a mixture of law and grace. This is actually, was done in, in well, on the Council of Trent in the 16th century where the Catholic Church explicitly defined or denied the idea of salvation by faith alone. This was a major debate, of course, in the Protestant Reformation. It's one of the major splittings of the Protestant Reformation occurring because of this mixture of law and grace. Are you saved by grace alone? Or is there, is there things that we have to do in order to obtain salvation? And this debate between the two that still exists even today. But I'm convinced in Scripture that, of course, we are saved by grace through faith alone. If you look at Paul's writing in Romans 11:6, or start with verse 5, it says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, referring to people. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. And if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is undeserved, merited favor of God. So this is the idea that we are saved by grace alone and not by works, that there's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. So Paul is writing to a a group of people who are trying to suppress people who are new to faith or wanting to come to Christ, and then they're adding on laws on top of them that they have to fulfill in order to make that happen, and Paul stands against the false teaching of that. 
So with that in mind, Paul's standing up against these Judaizers who's trying to get people to mix law and grace. And here's what Paul writes to these churches in Galatia with these people in mind. Verse 15, he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, we've tried this out. We've tried uh, doing all the things that the law has required, and we couldn't do it. We couldn't succeed at it. We tried it, and we've determined no one can be justified by simply obeying the works of the law. doesn't happen. He says, verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, okay, that's a, we'll come to the in Christ in a minute, Justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker, for though the law, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. The Judaizers are simply arguing with Paul that removing the law promotes sinful behavior. If you just let people do whatever they want and fall under grace, then people will go crazy and just live however they want to live. Of course, in doing the same thing, Christ would also be promoting sin. That would be their argument, that Christ is promoting sin because then he's just saying, yeah, sure, I've died for you, so now go do whatever you want. And, of course, Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. Paul says that's foolish thinking. The real sin would be to turn back to the law and look for salvation without Christ, to turn away from Christ and depend upon the law in order to get you to salvation. That would be sin. Of course not, Paul is thinking, People wouldn't just take advantage of the cross and live however they pleased if they really understood the cross. In fact, they would do the complete opposite. If they really understood the cross, they would want to live to please Christ to the best of their ability, not dependent upon a pile of salvation, but simply out of reverence and honor and love for who he is. With that in mind, here's the scripture that I want to invite you to swing with me and kind of declare today and throughout the summer, and I hope and I pray for the rest of your life that you would anchor into this text, and it's the one I'm going to want you to memorize, and with that in mind, Paul writes these powerful statements. In verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, I want to spend some time, and I want to unpack this, especially verse 20 is where we'll spend most of our time, and I want to unpack it because it's the verse that I'm going to invite you to memorize. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. Christ lives in me. If you look at this, the perfect tense, have been, refers to something that has happened in the past, but the influence continues in the present. Paul's old self had died with Christ, and now the new life that he lives, he lives because Jesus is alive in him now. Jesus cannot live in the old self of Paul because that one's filled with sin. But there's a new creation in Christ, it says, right? Scripture says that in 2 Corinthians. This new us is righteous because of what Jesus did. This is also why our racial identity should Never take precedence over our identity in Christ. Paul just simply says, it was me upon the cross. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives in me. Then he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith. What does that mean? 
Before he was striving to obtain justification by the obedience to the law, but now he realizes that he obtains justification by choosing to trust in Christ, that I no longer obtain salvation by simply obedience to the law, and now I live by faith, this choice to trust God, that he is who he said he is. If you write this in your sermon notes, if you have those with you, the first one I want you to write in is defining justification or justified. An easy quote, a way to memorize it would be, just as if I've never sinned. Justification, I'm justified. It was just as if I've never sinned in my life. And I'm justified. So Paul is simply saying this idea that, hey, before we thought it was the law that would kind of treat us as if we've never sinned. And so they would have these ceremonial things that would happen and slaying of animals and spilling of blood to pay for the price of the sin. But now Christ has done it once and for all. And so he pays the sin. And now I'm justified. And in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes, it's just as if I've never sinned. Therefore, I'm holy, I'm righteous in his eyes because of what Christ has done. If you think about uh, Cash App, you think about these apps that we're using to transfer money. If I take money out of my account and I put it into your account, what was mine is now yours. Well, this is what Christ did, the same thing. He deposited righteousness into your soul's account. As we're talking about this soul that's inside of us and the spirit, we talked about that last week too, this conflict, right? You follow me on this? Last week I talked to you about this conflict between the soul and the spirit. And so this whole series is about fighting for your soul. And so the spirit has to take precedence over the soul. The soul wants to be engaged in this warfare with the spirit. And yet Jesus simply makes a deposit into our soul's account of righteousness and holiness. So now that Paul trusts in Christ and has chosen to believe what Jesus has said is actually true, he now trusts in Christ, which then goes to another question. What does it mean to be in Christ? You can write this into your notes when you say somebody's in Christ. To be in Christ is to be so united with Christ that all the experiences of Christ become the experiences of Christians. I'll illustrate that to you, and you can see it clearly in the text. I was crucified with Christ, that we, we experience the same thing. The ascension, we will experience that too. We experience the cross, we experience the death, the resurrection. We go through the same thing that Christ went through. If you think about it from a parent's perspective, each of my children carry a piece of me in them. We call them genes, right? We say that's hereditary. We'll say words like that. We are saying they're part of us. A part of us has been transferred and now it's living inside of them. So when the spirit of Jesus comes and lives inside of us, we get his righteous gene, if you would. He transferred his righteousness to us so that we are now made righteous and holy and blameless because of what he did, which allows us to enter into his holy presence. By the way, that's really good news because now his presence resides inside of us. So the question becomes, and this is where we want to anchor into so you have all this in mind. You have this guy named Paul who's simply living to give his full life to Jesus, trust in Jesus with faith that he is who he says he is and he does what he says he's gonna do and he puts all of this uh, at stake and he says it's not the law, it's only by grace and he gives his whole life to Christ to follow him and he goes to prison for it, gives up his life for it. You say, why would he do that? And this very understanding is revealed in the same text that we're reading, and it's in the very next line. He says, who loved me? That's important. Paul can confidently give himself to Jesus because he believes the love of Jesus 
has been demonstrated in the past. It's true that he loves us now, but Paul wrote, who loved me? It's the past tense gospel that the devil hates. I heard it said that let a preacher be continually saying God loves you, Christ loves you, and he and his congregation will eventually lose sight of both their sinnerhood and of the substitutionary atonement of the cross. Write this in your notes. Using the past tense, he loved me, reminds me of both who Jesus is and what Jesus did for me. All right. I know I've gone through this pretty fast. Let me anchor into this with you for just a second. So many times in our context, in our culture, we hear the statements, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And we see it on signs, you see it on billboards, Jesus loves you. Here's a problem with that. Although it being true, it removes a part of something very powerful. It's called the cross. Jesus loves you can be easily received as he's good with who I am and how I'm living. When you say to somebody, Jesus loved you or Jesus loved me, it's the past tense that all of a sudden my brain goes to and all of a sudden I think about what he did for me. So it reminds me of who he is and what he did. I find it to be very, very important in the way that we speak or converse. I do believe that Jesus loves you. That's true. But I believe even greater, he loved you, which immediately points me back to the cross and what he did for me. This is the point that Paul is making, and I think this is what he's trying to anchor into. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the life I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, pointing himself back to the cross and what Christ did for him. That's good news. Write this in your notes. We obey God not because of law, but love. Look what it says. Gave himself for me. It's not enough to regard Christ as having died for the salvation of the world. Each person must claim that for themselves, that Christ himself died for you personally. We obey God not because of law, but love. This is what Paul is saying. It's because he loved me so much that this is why I give my life to him, because of the recognition of how much he loves me. Who else would I want to follow? How else would I, where else would I go? And in other words, Peter would say later on, or earlier on, that where else would I go? Who else is there to turn to? No one has loved me the way that you loved me. And this is where Paul is. He recognizes this. And in verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the best news in the world, that God's grace is sufficient the law is not needed for salvation. Then it leads to the question, the argument I know that people think, well, if you take out the necessity of any kind of action, then people just take advantage of grace. No, because taking advantage of the very one who gave himself up for us, that wouldn't display our love for him. Instead, we would display our love for him by choosing to trust him. Listen, when, if you trust Jesus, then you trust what he says about what sin does. This is Paul's point. It, if, you, if you understand the love that God has for you, then you trust him at his word. We just sang about it earlier today. You trust him at his word, and so that when he says, don't touch that, that's going to harm you, you trust him because you know that he loves you. 
Everything changes when you begin to really personify this idea and really personalize it that he loved me, gave himself for me. That's why it's a powerful, powerful sword, right? The sword, the word of God. Remember, it's it's the word rhema, the spoken word, that he loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to just anchor in that where where Paul is at with that. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when he says that, he's taking himself back to this past tense place. He doesn't say he loves me. He says he loved me, gave himself for me. So I I can follow him. And against, against these Judaizers who are trying to mix a little bit of law with grace, he says, I don't need the law to do that. I've got this grace. And the grace is so good that I gladly give over my life to him. Because he could adopt this idea that I know he loves me. And so I actually won't take advantage of grace by sinning and living however I want. No, on the complete opposite, because I recognize how much he loves me, I will run from sin every time he tells me to, because I trust him at his word. I trust that when he says, don't do this and don't say that and don't go there and give that, I trust him at his word. You put that in context of our modern day parenting or when we were children and we were parented in most cases or when we parent our children, don't say there, don't go that. Why? Because I want you to trust me. And then how stupid of you when you tell your, you call your children stupid. I call my children, you're stupid, I told you. Come on, you want to at least call them stupid. You can judge me right now if you want to, but, but you want to call them stupid. Why would you not do what I told you to do? Don't you trust me? Yes? Are you with me on this? Do you ever tell children, ever heard a parent say these? Of course. Or a coach say it to a player or a teacher say it to a student. I told you, why don't you trust me? This is, this is the heart of where Paul is. He understands that God loves him so much, that Christ loves him so much. I'm going to trust you at your word. So I'm going to stay away from that. And I am going to give that. And I am going to stay away from that. I am going to go there. I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to hang out over there. I will hang out over there. Why? Because I trust you. You tell me to abide in you. You tell me to seek you first, the kingdom of God, and all of righteousness, and everything else will be given to me. I trust you at your word. So Paul is making the argument against these Judaizers and to the churches in Galatia saying, don't allow these people to think this is about law and grace. No, this is about grace alone and let that just wreck your life. He loved me and he gave himself for me. This is Paul's whole argument in Galatians 2.20. So I have a question I want to ask you today. Have you been saved By the grace of God. Notice I didn't ask the question, are you saved? I'm asking you today, and I came here to ask you today, are you saved by the grace of God? That means no room for saved with a mixture of law in it. This is what the Judaizers are doing, but you've got to act a certain way. You've got to do this. It's not right. Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's all grace here. Are you saved by the grace of God? Because it's when you become saved by the grace of God, everything, according to Paul, in your life changes for all eternity. 
How you function in this world today changes. How you operate, how you speak, how you talk. Everything begins to transform your whole life when you're saved by the grace of God, when you recognize how much he loves you. It's one thing to say he loves you. He, he loved you. He gave himself for you. And he personalized that. We're going to say that in just a minute. You're going to see how it can transform, this is important, the soul. See, what the soul does, the soul wants to pay back God. The soul feels in debt. How could we possibly just, that doesn't make sense to us. But the Spirit says, understand that his grace is sufficient for you. And the Spirit will remind you of how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, Leads to a second question after asking you, have you been saved by the grace of God? Question, how do you know if you're saved by grace? This question moved in my spirit when I wrote this down for this week because maybe there's some of you in the room who you don't know if you're saved by the grace of God. How do you know if I'm saved by God's grace? Can I be assured of my salvation? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can be sure of your salvation by grace. Well, how do I know if I'm saved by grace? I mean, was, when I was, as a baby, you know, they told me something. I read a Bible, I attend church. How can I know if I'm saved by grace? The good news, Jesus gave, gives a very clear answer how we can know if we're saved by grace. John 10, 27 Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. Oh, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never, ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the grace of God, by the way. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he makes a huge statement. I and the Father are one. I am God. I'm the creator, the one, the maker of all things. That's me. I am him. So how do you know if you're saved by grace? How do you know if you've, you've given your life to Christ? But how do I know if I'm saved by his grace? How do I know? Look at what Jesus says. Those who listen to my voice and they follow me. Write this in your notes. Those who belong to God, hear and heed the words of God. And yes, I intentionally put heed, even though we never say heed in our word today because it had an H and it sounded good preacher language. But those who belong to God, hear and heed. Listen to his voice and follow him. Do you listen to his voice and follow him? See, that's when you're saved by grace, because when you're saved by grace, the response is, I will do what you say and trust you at your word. Let's go back to Matthew 6, which we're going to possibly talk about towards in a couple of weeks. Seek first the kingdom of God, all of its righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. The context in Matthew 6 is all about money. It's all about not worrying about your finances and stay, instead placing all of your trust in God. And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Don't worry about all this other stuff. I'll take care of your needs. You just put me first. And the whole context is about money. 
Do you trust him? Do you put Jesus first in your finances? Jesus said those who are saved by grace, listen to my voice and they follow me. See, when you're saved by his grace, you understand how much he loves you and that he'll never mislead you. So if he tells you to do it, you do it. Because you are saved by his grace and you understand how much he loved you and gave himself for you. So the only thing you can ask yourself is, why wouldn't I trust him? I trust him at his word. And of course, Jesus is saying, yep, those are my sheep. Those are my sheep. They both hear my voice and they heed it. They do it because they are saved by grace. They understand the grace that I extend to them on the cross. By the way, this is so important to write this in. This is the evidence of a new life in Christ, not a requirement for a new life in Christ. That's very important. This is the evidence. What Jesus is saying, this is the evidence of my sheep. They listen and they follow. This is evidence. This is not a requirement. Praise God, we don't have to do everything he says to be saved. Everyone in the church right now say amen, even if you don't know what amen means. Okay. (laughs) Aren't you glad that we're not saved if we do everything he says? Amen. Yes. No one would go to heaven. We would all go to hell. Every one of you would go to hell. If the requirement to get to heaven was to do everything God said. Most of us probably didn't do everything God said to do this week. Today, this morning, I heard, amen, this morning. Right now, I'm disobeying him, you know. (laughs) That's grace. And then that begins the conflict between the soul and the spirit. The spirit says, trust him. The soul says, I don't know if I can. So how do you win that battle? been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of a sudden, my soul begins to be reminded of what's true, what the Spirit teaches is true, that I can trust him. I can do what he says to do. Because he loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, class, we will get there. This is that moment in ninth grade algebra, you know, where the teacher is like, are you ever going to get it? We'll get there. We'll get there, okay? Paul realized that the cross was a great exchange that occurred Jesus gave Paul his life. Christ came to live in him. So Paul's life wasn't his own anymore. It belonged to Jesus Christ. Paul didn't own his own life. That life had died. He simply managed the new life that Jesus gave him. Martin Luther said, I am now one with Christ. Therefore, Christ's righteousness, victory, and life are mine. On the other hand, Christ may say, I am that big sinner. His sins and death are mine because he is joined to me and I to him. 
To understand salvation, listen, is to understand he died in my place on the cross. So it was me up on that cross. He died in my place when he died. And I died to the law. So now I'm saved by grace through my choice to choose to trust who he is and what he did and what he says. Here's why this is so important to understand. Write this into your notes, please. Christians don't live out their own purpose. They live out God's purpose. Christ followers don't live out their own purpose. They live out God's purpose. We see this in Paul. Look what Paul says in Acts 20, 24. Paul, the same writer of the Church of the Galatia that's wrote in what I just read to you, said this, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Paul was so gripped by God's grace that he died to his own purpose in life. Instead, he lived out God's purpose for his life. That purpose was calling to share the good news of God's grace. Think about all the other options Paul could have had. Much easier to take some safe, easy way out, but he didn't. That's why Paul risked his life and was fine with dying for Christ because he knew it wasn't his life to live. It was Christ living in him. I wrote this in and I'll say it because I, I, think, it's, I think it's applicable. And this is no disrespect to anybody in any way, shape, or form, trust me, but living for him isn't wearing a t-shirt or putting a bumper sticker or a tattoo. It's allowing him to live through you. Listen to me. Listen to my heart of what I'm trying to communicate to you as people that God has entrusted to my care to teach to the best of my ability. You don't live for God because you attend church or because you wear a shirt or because you listen to Christian music. This isn't display living for God. The best evidence of living to display a life for God is allowing him to actually live through you. That means, like Paul, allowing him to do whatever he wants to do through you. That's the evidence of a Christ follower, those who know his voice and follow him. Now, if Christ lives inside of us, and I allow him to live freely in my life and operate in my life however he chooses, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not my life, it's his life. I got his name, Jesus, on my back. I, I got his righteousness, he lives in me, so now I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. Think about what that would do for the rest of your life and how that would change every decision you make for the rest of your life. If Christ lived through you, am I living as a Christ follower? Because I read the Bible? No. Because I go to church? No. Because I wear a certain shirt or listen to a certain kind of music or hang out with a certain group of people? Nowhere does that say that in John 10. Followers of Christ allow him and understand that he lives in them, and so therefore we allow him to live through us, and according to Paul, we allow him to finish the task that he calls me to finish, because it's him that lives in me. I'm just a place that he resides. So I consider my life worth nothing unless I use it for finishing the work that Jesus Christ has called me to, to tell people about the wonderful grace that I have found. This is Paul's statement. Bottom line today is our purpose in life is to do whatever God puts us on earth to do. It's as simple as that. Here's why I teach on this today in regards to this, because when our souls are in a battle, 
in deciding our plans and our purpose in life. I want you to swing this sword. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll invite the band up as we start to close out, and here's why I think this is so important for you today to grasp and to get. And this is 100% full transparency that I know is true for many people in this room. You still battle to this day, your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s at times. What is my purpose in life? Am I living out God's purpose for my life right now? Am I doing that? Or the soul wants to obtain and go after whatever the soul wants. I was even meditating on some of that this morning, what my soul wants. You know what I've determined about the soul? The soul is never satisfied. Does anyone here have, I have so much, I, I want nothing else. The reality is, is I could ask you right now to get a pen and paper out and say, list all the things you want, and all of you would have a pretty good list. Boats and jet skis and vacations and Fiji trips and cruises. Anybody? Oh, hey, man, that sounds great. Yeah. A little more cash in the bank. Better obedient children. I mean, you can just list out a whole bunch of things. Right? Beach body abs. Come on, you know. No joint pain. You get a whole bunch of things you, you, you want. You know what I know? This is true for you and it's true for me. You can list out a whole bunch of things that you want. And that list will never be complete. It's all about contentment. I've come to realize the soul is not satisfied. The only thing that satisfies the soul is when I allow the spirit to take over the soul. The soul gets pushed out, the spirit soars, and all of a sudden I find peace. Because it's not my life to live anymore. That's his whole, his whole point. So here's, here's where I want you to just wrestle with this, this week. Just what is your purpose? And the answer is to do and complete whatever God calls you to do. That's it. Today even. What's the purpose today and tomorrow and the next day and the next season of your life? There's always a next step invited into the purpose of God. Everyone has a next step, always, because it's a step right in front of us. We talked about that in Psalm 119. Where is a lamp to my feet, a guide for my path? It's just the next step. This week for me, it was to say, Lord, what's my next step? And what's going to take me? He told me, we'll just start praying for this. We'll just start praying for lamp for the church. Okay, I'm following that. So I'm just following that path. I'm just saying, okay, Lord, I'll just trust you at your word. You want to pray for that? I'll pray for that. That's where I'll be. I'll sit there. Well, I've been praying for land for the church. Okay, I trust you. There's always that next step to take. And, and here's what just really felt pushed on, just this idea of purpose. Maybe for some of you in the room today, you're like, I still don't know what it is. I work a good job. I got a decent paycheck. I got a good house. get to that place, the first thing that will come to you, listen, if you're young and you're maybe you're not having to battle that or wherever you are, listen, the reality is when you get to that place, the first thing that will come is fear. And it becomes the what if questions. What if this isn't him? What if it isn't right? What if I get it wrong? What if I lose that? What if I lose that? What if, and all the fear can begin to settle in into following Jesus. Which is where I think the powerful of God's word, the power of God's word, the swing of the sword is so powerful. Hold on, hold on. When you're debating, you're 
your purpose in life or surrendering your life over to Christ, just take out the sword, pull on. What does the text say? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body and the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know. This isn't my life. This is his life in me. So if he calls me to go there and calls me to do that and calls me to change this and change direction, do that, pick up that, set down that, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh and live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? All right, so let's swing it. Let's put the verse on the, on the screen if you can, which is, say it with me. You ready? All right, here we go. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. One more time. Ready? Here we go. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, we're going to do it one more time. When we get to that he loved me part, I want you to yell it out like you mean it. Like he loved me. Oh, he loved me. Oh, he loved me. He loved me. I want you to really anchor into that, okay? Get a little weird. We're going to get a little weird here. It's okay. We're going to yell out, he loved me. We're not going to be ashamed of it, right? We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loved me. All right, ready? Here we go. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God and gave himself for me. When you begin to understand that God loves you and he loved you, it becomes much easier to live out your purpose because you begin to get surrendered your soul to the purposes of God. You begin to realize it is not your life to live. Christ now lives in you. So everything you do, you do for him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. There's always the next step to take. And each and every week, we ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to me? So I ask you that now, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? some of our prayer team down front. We're going to have some people down front ready to pray with you. At any point in time today, in just a few minutes, we're going to sing a song that we're going to be dismissed. And if you need prayer today, I encourage you to come get prayed with. You. Follow Jesus. Give him your life. You're battling something, stress. You want to make a career change. You need prayer within. You need to hear his word. You want to follow his voice. You just want somebody to pray with you and stand with you. I encourage you highly encourage you to come and pray with and pray for stand with somebody trust that God is going to use another person to speak and give you the answer that you're after give you the direction or the step to do Jesus we thank you for this time that we get to come to you we thank you for opening uh, the curtain so to speak and getting into you in your presence boldly and confidently Jesus we love you I invite you to stand to your feet it's in your name that we pray Amen